Hello, sailor. Buy me a twink? Uh, oh, easy. I, I'm not a sailor. I'm a frog. Uh, that's a small talk and buy me a drink. Yeah, I don't even know you. Hey. You're not gonna move my girl. No, sir. He did too. He touched me. Ugh, go wash. You'll get what? No, you see, that's just a myth. Yeah, but she's my myth. No, no. Myth. Myth. Yeah. What the hell? And welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that features three cantankerous old fogies sitting up in their plush balcony, heckling and jeering the hardworking entertainers of the 80s and 90s down below. I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to pull out the screenplay to the moment he's living right now to check and see what should happen next. (laughs) I'm Seth, the host most likely to enjoy one of the finest wines of Idaho. 95 cents. (laughs) You know it. And I'm Becky, the host most likely to wonder if there really is life on another planet. Why do you care? You don't have a life on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it is not already obvious, today on the podcast, we're getting felt up. (laughs) Wow. Along with other materials like foam rubber and fun fur. It's a very tactile episode that may involve hands in places hands have not been before, depending on your after hours preferences. We can assure you that in this episode, there are no strings attached. But if you squint, you might be able to see the metal rods attached to our limbs that allow us to appear fully lifelike with a range of motion instead of just opening and closing our mouths. So play the music, light the lights, put on makeup, dress up right, raise the curtains, and meet the Muppets on the When We Were Young podcast tonight. Or today, whenever you're listening. Back in the DeLorean, a Saturday morning Cause we both be cynical or radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a fantasy or will it be fun? A decades later, will it still hold up? And this is when we were young When we were young this is the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational episode of the podcast to date, <laughs> or at least since episode 20 when we discussed The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, 80s fantasy films that showed off incredible puppets from Jim Henson's Creature Shop and were directed by one Jim Henson. Before we get into our very furry, fuzzy, wacky topic today, I have an opening question for us that is quite related to this. Might be a quick one, but did you have a favorite stuffed animal when you were young? Yes. (laughs) Tell us more. Not only did I have it when I was young, but it's in my current house right now, waiting for my children to play with it. Well, when I was little, I had lots of stuffed animals. I had a banana named Banana. (laughs) I had a doll named Dolly. Oh, no. Sense of theme. And I had a kangaroo named Bunny, because I didn't know what a kangaroo was. (laughs) That's the only reason it wasn't named Kangaroo. Yeah. Karoo. Roo Bear. (laughs) My bed was filled with stuffed animals, like, to the brim. (laughs) Your bed at a brim? I remember I had this little kid's shopping cart, and in a case of emergency, like a fire, I would put what I needed to bring with me fast into this shopping cart, like I made a plan, and it was all, like, my stuffed animals. (laughs) Did you do, like, little emergency drills for yourself? I mean, probably. Um, That's so cute. This is way on a tangent, but there was a fire in my house, so there's probably... (laughs) Oh, Oh, wow. Oh, was Bunny okay? <laughs> well, Bunny's still alive today, so okay. yes. Did Bunny possibly start the fire? <laughs> 
But he's like that little girl in that meme. Yeah. Bunny's an arsonist. <laughs> I don't remember where I got Bunny. And she was a puppet, actually, true to this podcast episode's theme. And I loved her. And I don't know what it was, but you never know what it is about specific stuffed animals. But she was my main doll that I would, you know, hold and, and hug all night. And my mom is a hoarder. <laughs> never, get, never gets rid of anything. And then I remember I came back home one day when I was an adult and I saw Bunny with all my old stuffed animals. And at that point, I was like, well, I'm taking her with me because of course I am at this point. You know, my four-year-old is just not really interested in, in stuffed animals. She has one she sleeps with and she has a doll she likes and that's about it. She's not really into that stuff. So it's now in my younger daughter's room waiting for somebody to play with Bunny. She's not into it. You're going to have to have another kid. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Meanwhile, Charlie, your dog, is there and he's just like, I would like to play with the thing. Uh, (laughs) He would eat Bunny in a heartbeat and no thank you. Out of all the ones that I've loved, I've loved Bunny the most. Again, a kangaroo. (laughs) Somebody out there has a bunny stuffed animal named kangaroo. We've all now learned something about Becky's prepper tendencies that somehow haven't (laughs) all emerged now as an adult again. I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but I had a cornucopia of stuffed animals. Did you have a stuffed cornucopia, though? I did not have any kind of cornucopia or horns of plenty or anything like that, unfortunately. I'm sure it's just a combination of time and sadness, <laughs> but I don't really remember Aww. which, if any, of my stuffed animals were my favorite, because at one point I got head lice. Oh no. And as a result of me getting head lice, I don't know why my parents didn't try to, you know, like wash the stuffed animals or something, but they basically put all of my stuffed animals in a trash bag and threw them out. <gasps> I mean, they had to, right? What can you do? I Aww. don't know. That would kill me. If that happened to my daughter, like, that would, like, they probably wouldn't, they'd probably be like you and be like, not that, like, hurt. Like, I would be hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like my parents were all that hurt about (laughs) it. (laughs) I feel like they felt just fine after that situation. Did they buy you new stuffed animals to replace? Some. Or were you in a bare room with nothing in it? Yeah. (laughs) You just had Spartan walls from then on in. You had lice, now you have nothing. (laughs) Yeah. I eventually had some more stuffed animals. For me, it was a numbers game with stuffed animals. I had a lot of them, and there was strength in numbers, you know? And, like, as long as they were all with me in the bed, then there was no way I could have horrible nightmares that would, like, leave me waking up screaming. Which did happen when I was a kid. I would just have super intense nightmares, and I would, like, literally wake up screaming. Um, (laughs) And I think that's when I really, like, started gathering felt and fluff. (laughs) My mom used to take a lot of photos on film and she's kept all of that because she too was a hoarder. (laughs) Um, It's okay. I am too. It's it's hereditary. But I'm hopeful that somewhere there's like a photo of my childhood bedroom probably with all the stuffies in it just because they were there. There was like, it was, that was a fixture that was like a permanent part of the furniture for me, basically. It was like the mountain of stuffed animals. Like in the way that some people have like a mountain of accent pillows on a bed. (laughs) That was my bedroom coterie. 
I don't want to get ahead of Chris, but I have to mention my niece, Evie. The way my daughter isn't really into stuffed animals, she is the opposite, where that's all she wants. That's all she wants is stuffed animals. And she is... I go to my sister's house, and it's like a sea of stuffed animals, and she just wants more. <laughs> and But the thing is, she knows all of their names. She doesn't forget them. She's just like, that's that person. That's that person. That's I think that that's, person. I think that's how it was for me. Like, it really was like, that was my posse. But this posse is like... 300 strong. (laughs) That's a posse. So when I was growing up, there was a house in my neighborhood. And I don't know if y'all have ever seen a place like this, but I would just love, anytime I was taking a walk in my neighborhood, I would make sure to pass by this house. Because this one house had an entire room and they would always leave their curtains like flung wide open. Is this is this uh, going to be an appropriate story? <laughs> Weirdly, it is. A, there was probably something weirder going on beneath the surface. But I would always want to pass by this house deliberately because this room was filled from literally the floor to the ceiling with dolls. The floor to the ceiling with dolls. You mean like stuffed animals, or you mean dolls? Oh no, I mean dolls. Oh dolls. boy, that's and creepy. Think, it is creepy. I think that that is an extension of the same motivation. And the same kind of love. Like, there's just something about it that it's not just the dolls, but it's the number of them, the overwhelming force that, like, I'm, I guess for some people, it, you know, becomes a point of pride. It becomes the thing that they collect. I never felt that way. I wanted a connection. I wanted a connection with my, my stuffies. Did any of your disaster prep prepare you for lice did you ever do like a drill with like what happens if you get oh, lice no that was i well, I guess i never got lice <laughs> breaking my heart <laughs> well i thought this was going to be a cheerful question but <laughs> we've got becky's fire and <laughs> seth's trash bag there so <laughs> which just reminds me that uh in batman returns selena kyle stuffs her mm-hmm. s- stuffed animals down the garbage disposal and that was always the like most traumatizing part of that movie <laughs> to me as a kid i was like whatever slash people's faces with your talons but don't kill your stuffed animals that's sad what a way to go i related to a lot of what you guys said first of all i had a blanket that was the color yellow named mr white <laughs> Probably for similar reasons that I was not a a big color aficionado at the time. I was probably Reservoir Dogs two or three. I was assuming that just meant that was the blanket that you always pissed on when you were a kid, and it started out white. I believe it was intentionally yellow. Yeah, sure it was. Sure it was. (laughs) He's still around, and he smells plenty fresh, so I I think it's fine. But my main stuffed animal buddy was Joe the Rabbit, actual rabbit. Big, you can't see on the podcast, but I'm, I'm indicating that he was a large he rabbit. Like floppy ears? He's doing size hands. Floppy everyone. ears, like a big grin, and like a very goofy looking face. He like did, it, Roger Rabbit? Yeah, kind of. It wasn't Roger Rabbit, but it had that kind of, like, uh, I, I believe he predated Roger Rabbit, okay. actually. So He dated Roger Rabbit? That's crazy. <laughs> no, he predated him. So they were just like holding hands and Ellen. But just oh, okay. Little. They met on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> they met on Hopper. <laughs> They met on Patch. <laughs> That's a neighborhood website. Oh it's my a- god, Patch. <laughs> Patch. Someone said this, I don't even remember who, but I liked to accumulate the animals on my bed mm-hmm. as many as I could. I wasn't like a crazy collector. Like I didn't want 300, but I liked the feeling of having like something fluffy everywhere. <laughs> Still do. 
And I, I loved, like, for some reason, the bed, like, always felt like a very wall off my bed. Give me all my stuffed animals and we'll be fine here. Like, let me just. Yes. Mm-hmm. I viewed my bed as my fortress. Yes. Yes. Me too. I kind of wished that it was mobile. I think I, like, had a brief time when I wished it could fly and then I could just, like, fly <laughs> around in a bed with my stuffed animals. Oh, my God. Did you After- watch Bed Knobs and Broomsticks? I was going to say. No, I didn't. <laughs> Yeah, so I would always go to bed with all my stuffed animals, like, around me, and then in the morning, they would just all be on the floor. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, that's how it goes. What was special about Joe the Rabbit? I think he was maybe just the first, or one of the first, and he was very big. He was probably, like, my size at one point when I was very small, and so I think he just got in under the claws of being first, basically. But I think he's still around. I I still have him at my mom's house, so a lot of them are still around. Some of them had to go. I once made a carrot that was named Mr. Silly Roots. (laughs) So that is the cutest thing you have ever said or that has ever been associated with you. I don't know if he had survived, but uh, he might have. He had he had very, he had like yarn, green yarn hair. Which of course he did. Of his course roots. he did. That's great. I was a big stuffed animal fan at the time, as I think many kids are. Apparently not all kids, but. No, I'm sh- as shocked as you. Because I, me and my husband came with a lot of stuffed animals under our belts that I, like, we don't even need people to give our kids stuffed animals even though they have um, just because we already have so many and she doesn't play with any and of them. And your kid has, like, it's not like she doesn't have a huge appreciation for cute things. Like, she yeah, loves she, cute things. Yeah, she'll she'll enjoy the, the, if you give her a stuffed animal, she'll enjoy the gift, but then she won't want to play with it. She doesn't think about that's it. That's interesting. Yeah. That is really interesting. She's a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> she kills small animals. We don't talk about still it. fairly young. That phase might still be coming where she yeah, wants to surround herself with plush things. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, it's, it's wonderful to see you guys, but how did you ever find us? Oh, easy. We just read the screenplay you left us. Exterior Desert Night. We knew right where you were. <laughs> like, can you get behind it? Hey, listen, when do you dudes have to be at that audition? Two o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Well, climb aboard the bus. We'll have breakfast at Hollywood and Vine. Motorcycle cop. Motorcycle cop is a sweet nothing? A motorcycle cop is chasing us. Many modern-day viewers who were not around in the 60s and 70s would probably cite The Muppet Show as The Muppet's big break, but that is a myth. That's a myth. What? Myth! Myth! Yes. Hmm. The Muppets didn't get their own TV show until 22 years after their television debut. The Muppets' origin story in entertainment begins about the same time as Jim Henson's. In 1954, Henson was recruited from his high school puppetry club. Some high schools must have a puppetry club. (laughs) Mine did not. For the Junior Morning Show, a Saturday morning children's program in which he brought the first Muppet, Pierre the French Rat, to life. 
Henson was paid $5 per episode for two episodes before the show was shut down due to child labor laws. But, you know, $5 in today's money is like $2,000. I don't think it's quite that much, but that sure. Was $10 total, so he could have retired at that age. <laughs> he was the Mark Zuckerberg of his time. Their more auspicious debut on a local Washington, D.C. broadcast called Salmon Friends was in 1955. It ran for over six years and starred Sam, a human puppet, and friends including Kermit, not yet a frog, who stole the show. I'm honored to be in the studio with two very distinguished NBC newsmen, and I'm going to chat with them a few minutes to learn something of their off-camera personalities. You know how when a newsman is giving his news, he's so self-controlled and precise? Well, we want these two guys just to relax and enjoy a couple moments of pleasant conversation. Here first we have... Chad Hutley, NBC News, New York. Yes, indeed, but let's not be quite so formal. Why don't you just call me Kermit, and I'll call you, uh, uh, well, what would you like me to call you? Chad Hutley. Oh, okay, Chad Huntley. Tell me, as a newsman, you're in a position to evaluate all the news and wire services. What do you think is the very best news service? NBC News. Oh, is that right? You like NBC News best? Any particular NBC News office? Washington? Los Angeles? New York. Uh-huh. Well, I guess that figures you working there and all. One last question, Chet. I'm sure you're familiar with our show Sam and Friends in Washington, D.C. Uh, I wonder who your favorite character is. Sam? York? Me? Harry? York. You say York? Gee, that's nice. Well, I'll be sure to tell him, and thank you very much for being our guest. The show was notable for doing away with the proscenium arch that framed all other puppet entertainment until this time and was aimed at young adults. Never really thought about that. Yeah. like The when, framing. When you think about it, like puppet shows always have that, like, yeah, the, like it, it looks like a stage, like there's a curtain above it. And yeah, on on his shows, they just like filmed it like a normal TV show, which was revolutionary at yeah. the time. Yeah. In 1961, Henson met Jerry Jewell and Frank Oz at the National Puppetry Convention in Carmel, California. And soon they became primary collaborators as Jim's wife, Jane, was pregnant and needed to quit the show to start their family. Apparently, you can't just play with puppets forever. Not if you're a woman. <laughs> yeah. Ralph the dog became an early favorite in TV commercials and late night shows like Ed Sullivan. The Muppets did a lot of TV appearances throughout the 60s, then got their biggest break in 1969 from the Children's Television Workshop, which was developing a new show called Sesame Street. There is a great documentary. I believe it's on HBO. I think I think it's called Street Gang. That sounds right. About the origin of Sesame Street. And it is fascinating. And the whole reason it started was because PBS wanted to target inner city kids because they were lacking the education that white children in suburbs were getting because mm-hmm. their parents had to work and the schools weren't funded as well. And so they wanted to give an educational entertainment to those kids that were home. But yeah, I recommend if you want to hear more about that before we inevitably get to the Sesame Street episode. Check that out. It was great. Can you tell me how to get to that documentary? Does your remote have a little button that says HBO Max on it or something? I believe it might. (laughs) Over the next few years, Henson grew dismayed that the success of Sesame Street had taught audiences that puppets were only appropriate for children's entertainment. So he appealed to his agent, whose other talented clients included Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Gilda Radner, and Lorne Michaels. Hmm. So perhaps you can guess uh, where this is going. The Muppets were also featured in the first season of another series aimed at a very different audience with the premiere of Saturday Night Live in 1975. 
The recurring sketch, The Land of Gorch, featured new Muppet characters who drank alcohol, behaved boorishly, and discussed sex and death. I don't know where he is. I've been looking for him all morning. He was supposed to give me an impermanent, you know. You know, dear, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he had left. Left? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, he's been going around all week with this faraway look in his eyes, and he keeps singing the most sappy, ridiculous songs to himself. Uh, I think he's in love. Scred? In love? Mm-hmm. Well, the last time he fell in love was when he went head over heels for Fran Allison. <laughs> Remember that? He, he formed the Gorch chapter of the Kukla Fran and Ollie Club. <laughs> Uh, This resulted in quite a culture clash at (laughs) SNL. Henson and his team were not permitted to write SNL sketches because of WGA rules. Oh. So the Land of Gorch segments were written by the in-house writing team. Writer Michael O'Donohue referred to them as little hairy face cloths and mucking fuppets. (laughs) And writing for the segment was assigned to the least liked members of the team. Henson always hated what the writers came up with for the sketches, and they were not a hit with audiences either, so they were discontinued after SNL's first season. No one was happy. <laughs> Literally no one. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if y'all have seen any of these. I've now seen a lot of the first season of Saturday Night Live, and it's really interesting how much more experimental it was before it became a TV institution. It is insane to me that there was a whole Muppet segment, a recurring Muppet segment on SNL. Yeah, it has a very weird tone. I did watch one of them. It reminded me, actually, of, like, the Dinosaurs show that was on ABC yes. for a while. That is the perfect comparison Is it also point. Jim Henson? I think, right? yeah. Watching those Gorch segments, it would have just been so much better if Jim Henson had written it. Like, it really is just, like, tonally, the material does not match the puppets. So, like, the tone of it is just off. And, like, you can feel it watching it. Yeah, I mean, you can tell, even though you can't see the humans, like, performing the puppets, like, you can feel the hatred of what they're doing <laughs> just, like, coming through the puppet, basically. Like, not even the set looks like it ha- it's having a good time. <laughs> By the end of the SNL run, Henson was already lining up a deal to bring the Muppet Show to TV screens, a program that would be situated pretty much directly between Sesame Street and Saturday Night Live, appealing to adults and kids alike. There were two pilots produced for the Muppet Show before it was the Muppet Show. There was a Muppet Valentine show in 1974, and in 1975, the Muppet Show Sex and Violence. Okay, that's bizarre to me. <laughs> yeah, when, that, when I first read that, I was kind of like, what? And I feel like the word sex was like a little bit less risque back then. I think it meant more like the idea of sex, like versus like an actual physical, like making out was considered, I think, sex. Still weird. It is weird. Yeah. <laughs> With the Muppets, very weird. And the idea behind the pilot was that I think there were seven Muppets representing the deadly sin. So it was very like conceptual. Like they were basically aiming to like make fun of how much sex and violence was on TV at the time. But they also wanted to make sure that it was clear that this was not just Sesame Street in primetime somehow, you know, that this was like something that adults would find funny. So before we go into the specific Muppet properties, I wanted to ask you guys what your overall history with the Muppets was, in particular, the Muppet show and the original Muppet movies. 
It's my turn to be incapable of objectivity on When We Were Young <laughs> podcast. The Muppets have been a mainstay and comedic touchstone throughout my entire childhood and my entire adult life. I was watching Sesame Street from the moment I was born, basically. As soon as I started seeing Muppet Babies on TV and started seeing Muppet Show reruns on, I think it was Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon that would show Muppet Show reruns or or Disney Channel maybe maybe Disney Channel maybe a couple different channels I was particularly obsessed with the Muppet Show itself and with the movies growing up much more so than the other you know Muppet series that were more clearly aimed toward children there was something about the Muppet movies and about the Muppet Show that I could tell was kind of aimed at adults and aimed at an adult sensibility and that was always a thing in movies and TV that was really fascinating to me because I always looked up to adults and was interested in what their inner world was like and interested in seeing how different things would be when I became a grown-up. There was also just always something about its sense of humor that seemed both very smart to me and very dumb at the same time. And that was a thing that that Muppets in particular like really helped define for me very early on as kind of a the balancing act that the ideal best kind of comedy does, where it, it can be both incredibly silly and dumb and also very astute at the same time. So yeah, I watched every Muppet movie I could ever get my hands on. I would watch any episode of The Muppet Show that I could ever see on TV. I think I've mentioned before that a lot of times in the summertime we would go to Disney World in Florida and Disney World had a 3D Muppets ride. 4D. Oh, that's right. It was, no, it was 4D. That's mm-hmm. correct. With like water spraying and like bubbles fog and effects stuff. and bubbles and stuff. I loved that, like, even the time that I was, like, a teenager going to Disney World. There was just something about the Muppets' sense of humor that was both so childlike and still in awe of the world and still was surprised by things. I don't know. There's, like, such an element of surprise and joy that's part of the Muppets for me. That's always been, again, just like one of the elements of that sensibility of humor that's just always always resonated with me and, all, and obviously also just really influenced my own sense of humor. I think if you would have just asked me, like, did you watch the Muppets growing up? Did you like them? I would have been like, oh my God, yes, of course. But kind of thinking about it, I definitely watched the Muppet show, but kind of passively because I remember being on, but I don't remember just like sitting there watching it or being obsessed with it. It was just one of those things like, it's on, I'll put it on. The Muppets to me, when I was little, were the Muppet Babies. That is a show I watched every episode of. And I remember, I believe it's the Muppets Take Manhattan. There is a flashback to when they're young and there is a Muppet Baby sequence. And I don't know if Muppet Babies came first or Muppet Babies like spawned from that one sequence. The movie came first. The movie came first. first. Well, I loved that sequence. So maybe I saw the Muppets Take Manhattan after being introduced to Muppet Babies because they're just so much cuter when they're little babies. (laughs) But like I watched the Muppet movie growing up and I watched the Muppets Take Manhattan, but I hadn't seen any of the other ones growing up. Not the Christmas one, not the Great Muppet Caper. Like it's funny that on the surface, I feel like I'm a huge Muppet fan, but really, like, I did not really partake in that world. So you're like an ageist Muppet fan. I guess so. I really liked the Muppet Babies. That was my, maybe because I just liked cartoons more. You're more a Muppet bystander at most. 
But yeah, as an adult, I saw the new Muppet movie. But also, I think that really helps me understand why, like, you were so surprised that that early Muppets pilot had, like, sex and violence in it. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, to me, that actually makes total sense, like, as a Muppets concept. But, like, if your experience with the Muppets is, like, kind of mostly the stuff that was explicitly kid-oriented, I totally get it. Oh, and Sesame Street. I love Sesame Street. That was, like, like, I love to follow that bird. Yeah. But this is a... This is a conversation for the Sesame Street episode. And like Fraggle Rock, I watched all the time. I think like actually watching Kermit and Piggy, that wasn't my preferred Muppets. Yeah, I think I'm more like Becky in this sense in that I never actually even saw the Muppet show. um, I don't think at all until this podcast. Wow. Which I would have probably said that I had seen it. And, you know, like you see clips of it, mm-hmm. like on an Emmys tribute or something like that. But I don't think I had ever actually sat down and watched a whole episode of it because I have no idea like where it was airing at the time. I didn't have the Disney Channel growing up. So if it was on there, I didn't have access to it. I definitely saw Muppet Babies a whole lot. I feel like it was always on in particular, like when like my mom's friend would babysit us, like they had kids that were our, our same age. So they always had Muppet Babies on. Like, I don't know, maybe I watch it at my house, but I, when I think of Muppet <laughs> Babies, I always remember their house. Their house. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Honestly, same with Star Wars and Back to the Future. All that stuff was, like, their house. Like, those weren't things that I had at my house as a kid. So maybe The Christmas Carol was probably the first Muppet movie that I ever saw. But, like, Becky, I kind of feel like the Muppets were so saturated in culture that it's, like, even if you didn't specifically watch The Muppet Show, and it's not like there were a ton of other Muppet shows at that point you felt like they were there like like mickey mouse and and just like Bugs mer- Bunny. merchandise i'm yeah. sure i had like a kermit and piggy doll you know but without even having to watch anything with them yeah they're just they were a part of the ecosystem of childhood very much up there with like all the other like really iconic characters that you know at a certain point, I got interested in the Muppet movie, the first one specifically, I think, because it was at that age that when Seth was just speaking, it reminded me of, like, I was at an age where I could sort of appreciate the, like, nostalgia for childhood that it was. It was beneath, like, my age range. Like, I was, you know, maybe, like, a young teenager or an old, you know, adolescent, like, somewhere 12, 13, 14, old enough that I was, like, not into, like, kid stuff anymore, but that it was then, like, kind of fun to be like back into kid stuff with the Muppets because you did have the sensibility that it was also for adults so you could like sort of enjoy the like kiddiness of it while not feeling like you were watching like a kid's show because it was talking up to adults as well so yeah it kind of hit me at that that time when you're between like childhood and adulthood and even though like the Muppets kind of cater to both of those like it was perfect to be like I guess I was like in between those things myself so it was just like both of those appeal to me at the same time. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Mr. Steve Martin! started on the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, mobitational. This is what we call the Muppet 
Thank you, and uh, welcome for the moment to The Muppet Show. Uh, listen, I really feel bad about this, but I have a special announcement. Hey, maybe we've gotten lucky at last. Yeah, maybe tonight's show's been canceled. <laughs> uh, tonight's show has been canceled. <laughs> have I died and gone to heaven? So that will bring us to The Muppet Show, which premiered on September 5th, 1976. Created by Jim Henson, written by Jack Burns in season one as the head writer, and then Jerry Jewell for the seasons two through five after that. The show starred Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, (laughs) Gonzo, Animal, Scooter, The Swedish Chef, and a celebrity guest star every week. Many of them were voiced by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, as well as several other of the Muppet team. The show was produced and shot in England on public broadcast network ITV. American networks had passed on the show thinking that it was only like a show that children would watch. So they didn't really understand Henson's vision for the show. So was it only going to premiere in England? It was syndicated. So yeah, it was produced in England and then sold to the United States. Got it, okay. And eventually over 100 other countries. So yeah, for listeners who may not know, like, the industry TV talk. Basically what syndicated means is that it's licensed out directly to TV stations around the country instead of like one network that's like premiering it at the same time. So it could be airing on different channels. Like it might be like, it might've been like my ABC channel, but your CBS channel because it's going directly to the TV station and not to a network. So, and it's not necessarily airing at the same time either. So was it a hit? It was the most popular TV show on earth. That's insane just in retrospect wow by season three 235 million people across the globe were tuning in weekly it's a big number and there were only 200 million people on the planet (laughs) yeah so (laughs) literally unimaginable now (laughs) 235 million people a week every time i mean no wonder it's just in pop culture whether you watched it or not but you probably did because that's many people watched it yeah and an estimated half of them were adults too so it obviously was not just a children's show as anyone kind of knows now with hindsight the biggest ratings on tv i mean i think the very biggest in america are like slightly over 100 million but that's only for like the very hugest things most things were like 60 to 80 and that's like a a big audience in like the 90s i'm not sure what it was in the 70s yeah i know in the 90s like 20 million was a big it was a pretty big weekly number like that would be usually the biggest weekly number Oh, that was big no that was really big at the time too. okay so for um for comparison's sake uh, one of the finales of This Is Us, when it was, you know, at its height, um, six million viewers. Right. And that is, that was like a record shatteringly big audience for modern day. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think that like, because it was syndicated network shows, like American network shows were not like broadcast, like all over the world. I mean, they aren't even now necessarily, but there's a lot more globalization now. But at the time, like American TV was usually like in America, British TV was in Britain and there wasn't like a million cable channels that would run all kinds of different things. So at the time, like for there to even be a global show, I'm sure was like groundbreaking. I don't think that there were others at the time. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. And I think part of that is not just the charm of the Muppets, but Kermit is a frog, not a white guy or an Asian guy or a black guy. Like, there's no, like, race. It's just a bunch of felt animals and creatures. So people can find themselves identifying with them, I think. 
Yeah, and I also think there's something very specific about the way there's a lot of referential humor in it. There's a lot of humor throughout all the Muppets that refers to pop culture. But the pop culture it's talking about is usually like classic Hollywood, you know, and the kinds of movies or musical references that would be able to travel worldwide because world audiences would have gotten all those records by the time that the Muppets were coming around. In retrospect, it is the perfect concept. But at the time, I can totally understand why every American TV network would pass on that. Yeah, I mean, I might have passed on it too. If, if you're like, oh, adults are going to watch this uh, puppet show. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, no, And they're going to make jokes know. about Casablanca, you yeah. know, like you do. Yeah. <laughs> Guest stars on The Muppet Show were one and done. No guest star ever appeared more than once. The show was nominated for 21 Primetime Emmys and won four of them, including Outstanding Comedy Variety or Music Series for its second season in 1978. It also won three BAFTAs, a Grammy, and a Peabody Award. So just to get a sense of what Muppet Mania was like at the height of the show's popularity, here's a quote from Jerry Jewell from 1979 in an interview. He said, this is one of the craziest weeks I've ever lived through. The Muppets have just finished taping Sesame Street back in New York for the start of the 11th season next fall. Then they flew out here. On Monday, Kermit substituted for Johnny Carson as guest host (laughs) for The Tonight Show. And they all entertained there. All week, we've been rewriting and rehearsing and redecorating the Coconut Grove for the party Jim's giving on Friday. That's tomorrow night. A huge guest list. Some of the biggest stars in Hollywood will be showing up. And in the midst of that party, while the Muppets are entertaining all these celebrities, we're going to shoot this hour-long television special. Production assistants are running around screaming, how are we ever going to do all this? And Jim is wandering around in the middle of it all, perfectly calm, perfectly content. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, by a couple years into the series run, the Muppets were literally, like, everywhere that's like crazy because the muppets are like a handful of men (laughs) like it's not like miss piggy's being flown like jim henson and frank oz you know are being flown back and forth doing so many different parts for these different yeah it really it was not a gigantic operation of you know dozens and dozens of team members it really was just like that core group of a couple people Yeah, and the same people pretty much through the whole run, at least up until, you know, like, modern times. You know, like, even through, like, the Christmas Carol movie, a lot of the same people were still working on it. I couldn't find reviews of the first season of The Muppet Show. It was syndicated, so it might not have gotten the same attention on its, like, debut that a network show would have gotten. Or maybe it just didn't seem to be begging for critical discourse in the, you know, when it first started. (laughs) But by 1977 and 78, there were a ton of articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine about the show's success. It was seen as a huge phenomenon, and most of the articles basically called out the networks for being big dummies and passing on the show. <laughs> Hindsight. You don't know. Right? Yeah. So this is what Time Magazine said about it in 1978. So this is a couple years after it debuted. They called it the only adult show on television. <laughs> <laughs> they said, give or take Saturday Night Live, the funniest show on television. And also said, Kermit, Rufal, and Dithered freeze a part of our own nature so absurd and defenseless that we would never let a human actor hold it in his hands. This freedom is wonderful, but there is a price. What these puppets mean to the millions of people who have watched them is almost embarrassing to express because the feeling they evoke is nothing less than love. Oh, 
Yeah, so, I love that. Yeah. yeah, even early on, you know, it wasn't just like a fun phenom. Like people were really, really attached to this, and the media really <laughs> seized onto this like success story, almost as if it were like real people, you know, who had like this like <laughs> underdog. I mean, Jim Henson and his company can be seen like that, but the Muppets were treated like people, celebrities, basically. Local frog makes it big. <laughs> yeah. So we all watched a few episodes of the Muppet Show. We'll talk maybe briefly about the specific episodes, but just over. Overall, what were your thoughts? I guess you guys were both revisiting the show that you had at least seen in childhood. Maybe, Seth, did you see it more recently as well? Or were you seeing it for the first time uh, in a long time? I was seeing the Muppet Show episodes for the first time in a long time, actually. Because, yeah, I, I never owned them on DVD, really. I got rid of cable decades ago at this point. There aren't really many places where, you know, the Muppets just kind of creep up. They don't really get too many revival screenings, you know? Of course, it's all, like, it's all on Disney Plus now. <laughs> so if I want to, you have to go to that walled garden to get it. And I've definitely revisited a lot of the movies since childhood, and young adulthood, but I hadn't really revisited The Muppet Show since then. I was equally delighted now, if not more so. I think I had a lot more appreciation for especially a lot of the pop cultural references in it. I've now seen a lot of the classic movies that they were referencing throughout all of the Muppet series that I hadn't really seen at the time, definitely when I was a kid. A lot more appreciation for the the references in the jokes and in the gags that they're doing. A lot more appreciation for the guest performers. A lot of times the guest performers that they had were real like trailblazers or real icons in their own right, not just people who were kind of like flashes in the pan for the most part. So I also like really appreciated this time around watching it, understanding the way that they were clearly pretty careful in picking their guest performers and also in picking people who they thought would like play really well against the Muppets. And I think they were, for the most part, incredibly successful at that. Now I have like so much more appreciation for the Muppetry, (laughs) the Muppet puppetry, just the physical dexterity and honestly like just the comedic timing of the humans operating those suits. Like, it it is such an acrobatic exercise to do that. And it's an exercise, like, to do that, just to do those physical motions, much less to do that in a way that is successfully having great comedic timing and able to sustain, like, a live sketch format that is so crazy to me to just, like, think through logistically how you would approach doing that. But I thought they the their batting average was pretty much phenomenal in doing it. The Muppet Show is proto Thirty Rock. <laughs> totally, I totally see what Kermit you mean. is. Liz Lemon, the very the put upon guy that's always trying to get everything done. Uh huh. And everybody around him is crazy. Un- Miss Piggy, unable to wrangle the writers' room. Yep, yeah. Miss Piggy is Jenna Maroney. Of course, um, absolutely. Maybe Animal is um, Tracy Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so on and so on and so on. Some Someone's Alec Baldwin. I don't know. <laughs> Sam the Eagle. Yeah. Sam the Eagle is. Alex is I was going to say the Definitely. Same thing. The Swedish chef is uh, Jack McBray. It's <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth. Yeah. <laughs> the, those were my first thoughts watching The Muppet Show again after all these years. That's pretty great. 
<laughs> um, my second thought was Miss Piggy's eyes look very weird. They did not get her eyes right for a few years. <laughs> She's kind of cross-eyed, isn't she? She's like cross-eyed or just like whatever it is. They didn't get her eyes right or her voice right. Her voice was very no, different. it was. Her voice it was, was deeper. different. Uh, yeah, it wasn't Frank Oz or at least like Frank Oz was like switching off with someone else it was early on. Very different. Miss Piggy's voice early on was a lot like Janice. Yeah. Janice is the hippie Muppet. Yeah. Janice, Janice had, it's like they switched voices. Yes, yeah. it is. It, yeah. So the Miss Pigginess of it at first threw me off. <laughs> Skeeter looks like my old boss. And um, my coworker at the time texted me a picture and said, this is our boss. And I couldn't stop laughing. And now I can't unsee it. Do I know this boss? But the second I saw Skeeter, I was like, that's my old boss. That's hilarious. <laughs> I felt like not all the sketches worked. I would say less than half of the sketches worked. Whoa. Yeah. It just didn't work for me on a comedic level, like the writing of it. It's charming. It's the Muppets. They're charming. You gotta like them even when the jokes fall flat. The thing that I recognize the most in this viewing, because I wasn't very entertained by the actual comedy of it, is just the performance and the craft of the Muppets. That they look phenomenal. Piggy's eyes notwithstanding <laughs> in the earlier seasons. The puppets themselves are incredible, like just the craft of making them and so many different variations of what they look like and, and being able to perform these characters. And the thing that I found so amazing in all of this Muppet rewatch is that when Kermit's on screen or Piggy's on screen or Fozzie, I am thinking, oh, there's Fozzie driving that car. I am not thinking there is Frank Oz below. I'm never thinking there's Jim Henson below doing what he's doing. I am never imagining the people below. I am always just there's Kermit. And I think that's probably the highest praise you can give for the performances is that I think that Kermit is Kermit. Piggy is Piggy. Like these people, these people are the puppets are real. We all tried uh, to <laughs> demonstrate some puppetry before this episode, just, you know, to kind of get a feel with it. I own, a, when Effio uh, Schwartz had their Muppet workshop, you could make your own. So, uh, wow. so I got one for my husband. I brought it in so we could test it out. It's hard. We were bad. <laughs> uh, speak for yourself. We were all bad. <laughs> I was phenomenal. He wasn't. <laughs> wow. I, we're going to have to post these videos to let the evidence speak for itself. It's hard. It's hard to remember to, you have to keep the head moving and the hands moving because they're alive. And the mouth moving you know? when it's talking. Yeah, it's like they're actually like supposed to be alive and you don't ever just like have your head still, you know. It was hard. I totally see what you're saying about the sketches, like not not every joke in the sketch is hitting. But one thing that really rang true about it now, and one way that I was able to look past it a lot more now, just overall, was because I've now seen a lot more variety shows from the 1970s. That is a format, that is a type of comedy in particular, that just does not exist anymore. That really kind of mostly went away even before we were born, but that especially has not existed for like a good 20 years or so now. Like, variety shows do not happen anymore, and the variety show approach to comedy is a lot more like, we're all here to put on a show, 
and a lot more like kind of like a scrappy attitude and like a lot of like throwing spaghetti at the wall comedically to see what might stick. And I think that I appreciated a lot more watching the show this time around that it was very much just exactly in the vein of 1970s variety shows. For me, I mostly agree with you that some of the sketches don't land. A lot of the jokes don't necessarily land. But to me, that absolutely fits in with 70s variety shows like perfectly. This was my first time seeing the Muppet show, which surprised me and may may also surprise you, but it's so talked up. So many comedians and writers now will cite the Muppet show as one of their biggest influences. So it is really hyped up as a kind of a comedic masterpiece. And obviously, you know the Muppets and you know kind of the their shtick generally. So I kind of agree with Becky. I don't know. I was expecting this to be like Mary Tyler Muppet, you know? (laughs) Want to see that. I really want to see that. Just throwing up that tiny hat. (laughs) You know, like a a true discovery like that show was for me because I hadn't really seen a lot of that show when we did our Nick at Night episode. And I was like, wow, this is really fresh. The writing is really, really sharp. I totally get why everyone cites this as like a major influence. That's another one that, you know, tons of writers cite. This is not that. It's no I Love Piggy, (laughs) but it's no Welcome Back Fozzie either. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, I think the sketches especially are not, like, particularly funny, and they go back to the same ones a lot. Like, I think every episode I saw had a pigs in space. Or the pig, the doctor's office one. Uh, Yeah. No, the veterinary, I I feel like that was more of an early seasons thing. Pigs in space. There was at least one pigs in space yeah. in every single episode. That's and, yeah. Like I don't think I found any of those particularly funny. Like maybe like one odd joke in them would land, but it's just like I know that part of the shtick is that they're like homemade and a little bit bad. I think that's kind of intentional in a way. The humor is obviously going for a like, we think this is funny, but it's not really that funny. And then but even that is also kind of not that funny no, anymore. No, I, I honestly hate that kind of humor because it's just, it's anti-humor. It's like, yeah. isn't this bad? Yeah. yeah, it's bad. That is the variety show style of humor to a T. I don't like it though. That's fair. <laughs> the other thing I would say is that neither of y'all watched Star Trek growing up. So you literally do not have the vocabulary of pop culture to know what they are riffing on in the Pigs in Space sketch specifically. I, mean, I feel like I know. <laughs> you don't. Star Trek is. Right. You do not know the series. Like, because they're, like, making fun of specific characters on the show. I know this. Spe- I mean, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I know who's on Star Trek. But again, I'm just saying, like, in the 1970s, when Star Trek was a, when the original series of Star Trek was a gigantic cultural phenomenon as well, everyone would know the specific characters that the, those jokes are riffing on. But you could still do that. Like, I've seen parodies of that that are funnier because it's not very sharp humor. It's just very... Oh, I agree with that. Yeah. Like we were saying, like, it's hard to describe Muppet jokes <laughs> earlier. It's also hard to describe, like, what exactly is going on with their humor and specific sketches. But it's just, it feels like... Like mediocre improv, like where you can watch it and you're like, okay, but it's not great improv. It's not like something that you're going to remember. It's amusing. Yeah. I think mediocre is a judgmental word, but I, what I would say is that I, I think it's light satire. Your word sharpness is the perfect word to describe it. Like it's not trying to be an incisive satire to send up the things about a subject or about a pop cultural thing that are silly or that are dumb or that are bad. Like it's just kind of, again, just super light 
satire. Like, there's so much pop culture now that's like, oh, you know this thing, like, here's this thing again. And that's kind of what it feels like, is it's just like, you're familiar with this. Here's, like, a very, yeah, like, light send-up of it, but it's not even particularly funny, and I think it knows that it's not, like, killing it in jokes or anything, but it's just like, like, that might be fun, like, in one or two episodes, but to have it in every episode is like, I didn't need that many. I think that's totally true, and I also think that very little of pop culture was like that at the time. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, I totally agree. So, like, for me, a little of this show went a long way. I think it's perfect to watch weekly with your family, especially in the 70s. I think either as a kid in the at this time or as an adult with kids at the time, it would be the perfect thing to sit down mm-hmm. with your family. Like, I would really look forward to watching The Muppets every week. I can just, like, sort of imagine that, like, ritual at the time, especially sure. when there's probably nothing else on TV that hits, like, both those audiences quite as well as this. So I can definitely see like how like checking in with the show weekly would be great it's not a great show to binge watch now as an adult without children maybe if you have the nostalgia it is but i watched four or five episodes and i was like i'm good i'm not gonna probably go back to this show oh my husband and i who we would both say we're muppet fans i was like friday night i gotta watch the muppet show we're like let's get some drinks we're gonna have fun tonight and then after one episode i was like i'm kind of (laughs) done like we started a second and i was like i don't really care (laughs) like Because, I mean, obviously they weren't making the show for, like, reruns or for anything. It was meant to be, like, a broadcast once a week kind of thing. So it makes sense to, like, repeat the same skits over and over again. So I get why that was, like, entertaining at the time. It just doesn't make it super rewatchable now. In a lot of ways, that feels spiritually akin to Saturday Night Live for me. Yeah, I can see that. In a way that's, like, a lot clearer in retrospect, especially that I've recently been watching a lot more old Saturday Night Live. You start to see over the years where it's like, I totally understand why they kept that sketch going, but God, they should have killed off that character five years ago. And I can now, like, put a number to, like, this stopped being funny five seasons back. I totally understand, like, where both of y'all are coming from in that. After watching these episodes, I was like, okay, it's like, I feel like I've kind of revisited enough of the Muppet show. And I, like, at the, when I was a kid, I know that this show didn't appeal to me because I had no idea who any of the guest stars are. I probably knew Steve Martin and maybe, like, Elton John, and that was probably it. Now at least I know, like, a good half of them, maybe slightly more than that. There's still some pretty obscure stars, Mm -hmm. like, probably who were, like, TV stars at the time. Telly Savalas. (laughs) That was a name I knew. There was a couple. Yeah, yeah. So I was a little surprised that this was didn't have like the heartfelt stuff that like the movies have and like i think later muppet stuff has it's very jokey i mean there's not any real sentiment at no. all in the oh show. yeah they do not go for sentiment i think that's fine show. for what this show is oh yeah it just was like something that i was like oh, okay this is what the roots of this is i just really didn't know because i i knew it had started you know with sesame street a little bit too so i thought maybe the sentiment had been something that was carried through but it really wasn't i appreciated the kind of hippie vibe which i guess goes with like the improv vibe as well it's a very anti-establishment establishment show i mean even just in the form of like doing puppets in prime time is pretty anti-establishment but that's have you seen a picture of jim henson at the time (laughs) like that is like what a hippie looks like (laughs) for sure it's just not something i would have thought about i mean i can guess like you know the 70s and especially if he came up more through the 60s it makes sense but it it wasn't something that immediately came to mind with muppets that i knew like in the 80s and 90s but they're not like saying that like the establishment is evil you know they're not like anti-establishment in that way and that you know like a lot of hippie stuff was at the time but they're very making fun of just like anyone who takes anything too seriously like 
they're kind of making fun of like primetime television itself and other variety shows that would be, you know, more serious. So that is really fun, I think. To me, some of the funniest moments were things that were kind of making fun of like Saturday Night Live things. Like to me, one of the funniest things was in the episode where Rita Moreno was the guest performer. There's a whole like extended kind of run where it's just kind of Rita and Kermit and the comedy in it is like a running meta joke about comedic guest performers on sketch comedy shows and like making fun of how bad they are at reading cue cards. Yeah. What I recognize now about it was like, this is so early on for any kind of meta comedy to be in any TV show, much less a movie, but like especially not on a primetime TV show. Yeah, it reminded me of, first of all, like the humor of the 1920s and like the silent comedies of like Buster Keaton, because there would be a lot of like cue cards that were directed, like that were kind of breaking the fourth wall, which is kind of humor that I think mostly disappeared until like Looney Tunes, basically kind of. So it has a little bit of a Looney Tunes humor, but yeah, definitely in like primetime TV. And it had been a while, you know, since like Looney Tunes had kind of started that stuff. So it comes at an interesting time because it's pre-80s consumerism, which is when we were all growing up and when things were much more commodified. And when the Muppets were like a a merchandised brand to the nines. Oh, we'll get the Yeah, that's our next episode. We'll talk about a little bit more about what happened there. But like, they're not trying to sell you anything, which feels almost like revolutionary just for like (laughs) something that's aimed at kids, you know, and they're not trying to teach you anything either. Like, it's not it's not Sesame Street. They don't give a fuck. Like, the Muppets don't give a fuck. It's irreverent. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of also, like, vaudeville and, like, stage performance, obviously, because of the puppetry. Like, there's a lot of stagecraft there, but the, like, kind of homemade, like, let's put on a show. Like, even though they're obviously, like, putting a lot of effort into the puppets and, like, the performance, like, it's not just thrown together. Like, you couldn't possibly make the show, like, thrown together. It has that feel to it. And the the sketches have that feel to it. Like, we wrote this, like, you know, on the way here, Mm -hmm. you know? It, It doesn't feel like anything that was, like poured over and like really like put through a writer's room or anything like that and a lot of the jokes of it are about kermit trying to get the muppets to write a sketch because we don't have any sketches for tonight and yeah chris i was waiting i was hoping that you would say vaudeville and if you hadn't then i was gonna bust that three dollar word always count on me to look back to the 1890s (laughs) absolutely i totally agree with y'all that like a lot of the specific jokes of it don't necessarily make me laugh but that aspect of it that creative aspect of it they're kind of synth synthesizing vaudeville one of the earliest you know creative artistic forces that led to filmmaking and also like doing what is very much a 1970s variety show type of act like it made me appreciate it a lot more like even if i wasn't just laughing out loud at every second of it like even above and beyond the artistry of it the kind of vision of it and the way that it really does like bring together so many disparate elements and eras of American culture specifically in in one place and under one roof is just really extraordinarily ambitious for the fact that it's ultimately just like a puppet show on primetime television. So we watched a few specific episodes so we could all see the same ones. First one we watched was Rita Moreno from season one. And I say, listen, boy chick, I speak as good English as the next guy. Yeah, if the next guy is Desi Arnaz. Oh, okay. Hey, uh, please, uh, hey, uh, girls, if you want... Listen, yo. How would you like a high heel and your ham hock? What about conversation as a dying art? If conversation is a dying art... You killed it! <laughs> uh, Piggy, uh, please, why don't you let Tiffany and the guru talk? 
kissing you in the goo Didn't that star in that corner cello and Frankie ever long? You see, in my country we have a seldom used saying when the swine lubricates the automobile, you end up with a greased pig. That don't make sense. I know, that's why it's seldom used. In my country we have a saying too. Cuando uno trabaja con una cochinita majadera, lo que hay que hacer es darle la amenaza de posibilidad de What is that supposed to mean? That means one more crack from Joe and you go and enchilada! How would you like to take a flying lip into a sausage factory? She actually won an Emmy for this episode, and that gives her her EGOT. <laughs> awesome. Uh, a very spicy Rita in this. I was very surprised at how spicy is the only word I can think of. <laughs> no, it's it's the right word. When is she not spicy, though? Well, I don't She's know. not always throwing back shots at a bar <laughs> while dancing with a man who's also a Muppet that she's physically violently throwing around. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, that was a good sketch. She's like throwing around a Muppet and like beating, very violently beating Beating him. the shit out of him. <laughs> I really liked that one. I was very surprised by that, honestly. She curses at Miss Peggy in Spanish as well. So <laughs> she speaks in Spanish for a lot of this episode. So it's a very interesting thing. Like it's not like subtitled or anything. It's part of like the humor, I think. But it, it, it was an interesting thing to see, you know, especially since it was the first of these that I watched. It was a stronger like celebrity guest spot than I was expecting because she's so striking and so kind of dominates the episode in a way that I don't think actually happens with very many other of the guest stars that we saw. Also so much less cringy than it could have been. Yeah. My god. This is where I <laughs> noticed that like a lot of this show is just dad jokes. That's the Muppets is yeah. dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> and this episode also had Jim Henson like on screen like us himself oh wait no it was was it a muppet version of him there's a band he is a muppet <laughs> honestly i can't i'm like picturing it i'm like actually i think that was a muppet not himself i think there's a human looking band but anyway that didn't last for very long because it's not in the rest of the episodes i saw we also watched the elton john episode i believe elton john is a muppet like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, he start, it started with like Crocodile Rock and I was like, well, that tracks. Yeah. Not as good an actor as I thought he would be for no. some reason. No, he's not. No. He I, I had that note as well. It's the just Muppets like, were better. And almost all of it is him singing. Like, there's a couple of, like, little sketches with him. And yeah. you're pretty glad once you see his acting that, his that acting it's all singing. I mean, maybe he was, like, drugged out at the time. I don't know. But. I did think, like, what drugs is he on while shooting this? <laughs> what drugs is he on? What drugs are the Muppets on? Uh, he does a pretty nice uh, duet with Miss Piggy in that episode. That's, that was that was good. I like uh, that. Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Is yep. that what they sing? Okay. Yep. Um, so that one is fun for the costumes and for, like, the fact that the Muppets dress up like Elton John. Basically, just add more <laughs> fur to themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. There's a wonderful lady that uh, I've always wanted to work with and sing with. So, will you please give a great reception to the fantastic Miss Piggy? It seems like an eternity. Of course it does. Ready? Take the weight off me. 
either of you watch the Steve Martin episode? Oh, I most definitely did. That is one of the most famous episodes of The Muppet Show, by far. I loved the Steve Martin episode. I think that might have been my favorite one. The setup for the episode is that Kermit gets his dates wrong in his calendar when inviting Steve Martin to guest host, and he schedules it on the same night as auditions for new acts for The Muppet Show. So, like, the structure of the episode is that all these other random knockoff Muppets try out for the show, (laughs) and also Steve Martin tries out for The Muppet Show. (laughs) By, like, doing his various acts that he does. Like, he does a magic act. He does a banjo performance. I thought that was fun. I liked the plot of it. I had the same issue with Steve Martin in the movie as well, since he does a cameo in that. I feel like his, like, vanity as a performer comes through, where he doesn't let the Muppets be the star of his the scenes. Oh, no, he's not the straight man at all. The Muppets become the straight man. Yeah, and, like, almost everyone else, like, knows to, like, cede everything to the Muppets. And, I mean, they're usually very funny. Like, even, you know, Carol Burnett is an episode. Like, she's funny, but she knows, like, you know, to, like kind of tone it down and let the Muppets like take the reins and it feels like Steve Martin is kind of like stealing the scene from the Muppets which I feel like doesn't work as well I disagree because the Muppets are advanced enough comic performers that they reflect and acknowledge that role reversal in the moment. I would definitely argue that it's way more successful in the Muppet movie, and we'll talk about that scene that he's in later. And I get what you mean. I mean, that's a criticism people have often made of Steve Martin's comedic act in general. But to me, part of the reason I've always loved him so much is because that vanity itself is a put-on, and that vanity, the, the vanity he projects is a mockery of the vanity of comedic performers. It's also like a knowing referential mockery of just how narcissistic it is to be attention-seeking enough to get on a stage and want to have an audience laugh at you. I would agree it doesn't necessarily work as well in this episode. Yeah, like I think he was bringing in like specific like jokes from his SNL skits. I feel like more from his more from his stand up. Oh, act. from his stand up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not as familiar with like what that is, but I like I know his like excuse me is like from something he did that. That's like I just that's felt, from his stand up act. Too. Okay, yeah, yeah, I felt like bringing in like that kind of stuff just felt like weird. Like it it made it too like focused on him versus like again. I think this is another situation where the fact that we're not in the 1970s means we don't have that shared vocabulary as like deeply instilled in us as people back then did. Because literally Steve Martin was the most famous stand-up performer in the world at that time. His comedy records all went like platinum or more. Those jokes, like the excuse me, like that was like a bit that was known worldwide at the time. Well, I know what that bit is and I've never like directly heard it. I've heard people reference it. So I know that it is a thing, but it just, it to me, it like didn't fit the same kind of style of humor. Again, it's like, for me, that's total like straight down the middle variety show type of thing. And then the last episode that we all watched, I believe, was the Harry Belafonte episode from season three, which Jim Henson has said is his favorite episode. This one is kind of interesting because usually the celebrity would come in and just sort of do whatever Henson and company wanted them to do. Belafonte had, like, really specific ideas about what he wanted to do, and he specifically wanted this episode to be focused on world music, and so that's very much what you get in the episode. He sings his song, Deo, the Banana Boat song, and there's, like, a pretty great sketch about that and then there's another segment with african masks that's also very like lovingly and like specifically crafted in a way that this show does not always feel 
Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting episode. I don't think I'd ever seen it before. I don't know if I've even ever seen clips from it before. I haven't, no. Deo, the Banana Boat song, was a staple, like, classic song in my childhood. Well, Beetlejuice. Raffi. Raffi? Raffi No, Raffi way before Beetlejuice. Way before Beetlejuice. I had to look this up because, you know, it was such a classic, omnipresent song for me growing up. And one that I just really love, always loved that song. And I had no idea. It was originally released in 1956. And it had already been a classic for decades and decades and decades, even before The Muppet Show, much less when we were all around. This was the first time this song was ever performed on TV, which I didn't know. Which I think they say something about in that, like, there's they a do. joke about it, No, right? they do. Yeah. And that's why I looked it up, because it was like, is that actually true? <laughs> like, the Muppet Show? It seems crazy, because, like, at the time, there was all kinds of singing on TV, like... And not only that, but that song itself, while it's very upbeat, has a very, like, dark undertone and political message to it. It was a very politically meaningful song. Which I think is actually part of the context of what they do here. Like, it's still obviously funny, but it's not totally glossing over what the song is. Like, it's a song about day laborers and, like, how much they go through and how little they're paid and how much they're abused. It is obviously comedic and I think it pays off in a very comedic way. Where, like, the running joke is that they totally forgot to get any banana props for the Banana Boat song. And then by the end, they're like, the bananas are here! And it's like a 20-foot-high literal bunch of bananas, which is a joke lyric in the song, but in the reality of the sketch, it's a literal, like, 20-foot bunch of bananas. It totally makes sense, Chris, that, like, Harry Belafonte clearly had more influence and more creative direction over this And I really appreciate the fact that they were, like, game for that. And I feel like our generation was a little bit removed from the heyday of someone like Harry Belafonte. Yeah, I wouldn't have known who he was for a very long time. But but it's meaningful that, like, again, even just that song was still such a mainstay when we were growing up. And I think something like this is a kind of thing that could give you an appreciation for him and probably made people at that time more interested in him and in his work than they might otherwise have been. And I do think it's one of the more successful episodes. I love the portion where Harry just like kind of gives in to the silliness of it and he starts kind of like conducting the Muppets like an orchestra. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, 
yeah, this was the episode that kind of transcended like my issues with some of the other ones is it felt like cohesive. Like it was still very on brand for the Muppets, but it felt like it had like sort of a through line and it wasn't just this random sketch, that random sketch, like disconnected jokes. But no one told me that there was going to be a tarantula Muppet, um, (laughs) which was both cute and horrifying. And I am so conflicted about this. I don't know whether to kill it or love it. The last thing I really wanted to say about the show is just Statler and Waldorf. Yes. Ah. I mean, they appear like really early on, I think, in, we didn't watch the very first episode, but in the first season, and they usually appear early in the in the show, maybe even the first thing in a lot of the shows. And they're critics of the show. They're, I mean, that's their shtick, obviously, they're making fun of the show, but it's very meta in, in a way that, like, a lot of Muppet, Muppet stuff is, but it's very interesting to have a show that's, like, calling out its weaknesses constantly and, like, critiquing itself and, like, basically, like, the Muppets kind of becomes critic-proof because there are two critics right there <laughs> criticizing it already and calling it dumb and, you know, kitty. And the critics and, are puppets. Yeah. <laughs> the critics are Muppets themselves. It's very self-deprecating. Yeah, and so I I think that's a really smart thing to do. And obviously that kind of stuff is done a lot more now, but they're the original hate watchers. Oh, for sure. I think that they are in the Muppet show. They are generally have the most success rates of actually making me, if not laugh, then chuckle. Yeah. Because it's typically set a punchline and then blackout. (laughs) You know, some of them, maybe there's a little bit more back and forth, but generally it's like, da 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 da. If you don't mind, I'll do the jokes. We don't mind, but when are you going to do them? Uh, Pay no attention to them, folks. They don't bother me. I can handle hecklers in my sleep. Oh, well, don't tell that to the audience. They're asleep, too. (laughs) Uh, uh, Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh yeah! Yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah! Uh, listen, I'm going to tell you my best joke, and if you don't laugh, then I'll never come back out on this stage again, okay? It's a deal! Mm. Oh. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, uh, these two cannibals were talking. One cannibal says to the other cannibal, Who was that lady I saw you out with last night? The other cannibal says, That was no lady, that was my lunch. <laughs> I got you, I got you, and I lied. That was my worst joke. Oh, I love me when I'm good. Pacing, timing. Why did we laugh at that terrible joke? Well, either we're getting soft or we're in the first stages of senility. Because it's so simple, it's, I don't want to say easier to think of things, but like, it's just so clear, like the setup and the punchline. And it's, it can, it's so, it can be repeated over and over and over with so many different setups and punchlines, depending on what we just saw. Yeah. And you can often predict what like the punchline is going to be, but it still is like amusing anyway. Yeah. Statler and Waldorf were always two of my very favorite Muppets. Like even from the time I was a kid, I had no context for understanding what meta humor and meta comedy was. I just loved the fact that they were making fun of the thing that they were a part of. (laughs) Especially the fact that they are Muppets making fun of the Muppets, I think is a meaningful thing. Yeah. And yeah, no, Becky, I'm I'm right with you. Like that was kind of the biggest hit rate for me as far as actual laughs Mm -hmm. rewatching this. Me too. 
it's funny the fact that they're puppets makes it more rewatchable because like when SNL bombs, it's like very awkward and you feel bad for the performers. When the Muppets bomb, I don't know, they're puppets. Like you don't have that <laughs> same like kind of They're still very cringy. charming. Yeah. So yeah. I, I like that they're two old men. I don't know. So that will take us into the Muppet movie, which was released June twenty second, nineteen seventy nine. I, I told you, Lou, not in the movie or at the screening. Hey, but what? <clears throat> Whoa! Permit, does this film have socially redeeming value? Oh, I, 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 I certainly hope so, Sam. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, hi, Biggie. Hey, I tried to save you a seat, but somebody took it. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first screening of the Muppet movie. Uh, but before we begin, I'd like to thank everyone who contributed to this film, starting with the little people, from the hairdressers to special effects. That's enough of that, Harry. To the costume designers, to the prop makers. Speeches are not necessary, dear. Roll the film. Yeah, but I'd like to thank everybody for all of their hard work and their patience and their work. Roll film! It's directed by James Frawley, written by Jerry Jewell and Jack Burns, who you may recognize uh, as the head writers of the show. Music was by Paul Williams. Wow, I didn't know that. Wait, who's yeah. that? Singer, songwriter, actor. I know him best from the Brian De Palma <laughs> rock <laughs> opera comedy spoof. Very wild. Phantom of the Paradise. What? What? <laughs> yeah. Reaction would be the same after watching the movie. It's very wild. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. The movie stars Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, etc. <laughs> Many cameos, including Cloris Leachman, Orson Welles, Madeline Kahn, Carol Kane, Milton Berle, Richard Pryor, Steve Martin, Bob Hope, and Mel Brooks. Also, Dom DeLuise and James Coburn and Madeline... Did you say Madeline Kahn? I did. I'll say her again. Madeline Kahn. <laughs> I was trying not to be a completist, but... Uh... And Telly Savalas. And Charles Durning. And you. And me. <laughs> <laughs> Many of these were not Muppeting for the first time because they had guested on the show previously. The big thing with the movie was that they were taking the Muppets out of the studio, which they always were in on the show, and they wanted to show them performing in other ways. On the show, you know, they were always from the waist up, basically. You never saw Muppet legs. They definitely wanted to do Muppet legs. So scandalous. <laughs> yeah, flashing their ankles. I'm not a fan of Muppet legs. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Wow. It's unnatural. <laughs> Becky laying these markers of moral judgment down. The firm. president of the Coalition Against Muppet Legs. <laughs> Mothers Against Muppet Legs. <laughs> Mammal. <laughs> Becky's been leading that organization since 1985. One of the early scenes has Kermit uh, sitting on a frog. Uh, <laughs> Keep that's, that in. That's disgusting. <laughs> uh, sitting on a log. <laughs> performing a song the song being the rainbow connection yes performing a song (laughs) one of the most moving pieces of music ever written you know just any song it is a great song i was literally in tears at the start of this movie i wouldn't go that far but it's a good song 
<laughs> to perform that piece, Henson was underwater, squeezed into a specially designed metal container, complete with an air hose to breathe, a rubber sleeve, which he could put his hand through to perform Kermit, and a monitor to see his performance. So it was a very high-tech <laughs> endeavor, although it does not necessarily look that way on screen. For scenes involving driving, a dwarf sat in the trunk and controlled via remote control. A television monitor showed what was ahead. That sounds very perilous, but that is how it was done. The closing reprise of Rainbow Connection in the movie featured a crowd of more than 250 Muppet characters, virtually every Muppet that had been created up to that point. 137 puppeteers were enlisted from the Puppeteers of America, which is a group, along with the regular Muppet performers. Prior to the day-long filming of the shot, Henson gave enthusiastic participants a lesson in the art of cinematic puppetry, including John Landis and Tim Burton. That's cool. The Muppets hosted The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in April in order to prepare audiences for a Muppet movie. And in May, an hour-long special on CBS called The Muppets Go to Hollywood aired. As far as I can tell, no one dared to write a negative review of this film. (laughs) (laughs) They would have been hunted down. Because like I said, the Muppets were very, very popular at this time. They were everywhere. So if such a review existed, it has been expunged from public (laughs) record. I pulled two positive reviews uh, from Siskel and Ebert. Gene Siskel said, It has been a long time, more than a year, since I've been able to recommend a film for children that also will appeal to adults. And that's just one of many ways to praise the Muppet movie, which does a fairly nice job of trying to be all things to all people. Which is not an easy job. The Muppet movie delivers on its promise to give us more than we get for free on the TV show. The Muppets thus join such superstars as Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, and John Travolta in successfully making the transition from the small screen to the big screen. (laughs) And Roger Ebert said, Jolson sang, Barrymore spoke, Garbo laughed, and now Kermit the Frog rides a bicycle. The Muppet movie not only stars the Muppets, but for the first time shows us their feet. Becky's not a fan. Boo! Boo Muppet feet! (laughs) And if you can figure out how they were able to show Kermit pedaling across the screen, then you are less a romantic than I am. I prefer to believe that he did it himself. Me too. The movie grossed $65.2 million. It was a big hit. It got two Oscar nominations, one for Best Original Song for Rainbow Connection, and one for Best Original Song Score, which is a defunct category. But it lost to It Goes Like It Goes from Norma Ray and the song score from All That Jazz. I would still give it to Rainbow Connection. Yeah. Are we, are we not all bopping our heads to the hit soundtrack of Norma Ray? <laughs> <laughs> so we'd all seen the Muppet movie before, correct? Yes. At least once. Many times, yes. And what did you think of it on a rewatch? I was disappointed how little I enjoyed watching this movie. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The Muppets just kind of annoyed me in like, what is this, 90-ish minutes? Wow. I had to analyze this a bit because I grew up watching this movie, but this is the first time I've seen it in a long time, and I don't know anything about the Muppets, <laughs> like what they want besides to put on a big show, be rich and famous. I don't know anything about about what they want. Just want to entertain people. But that's not enough. (laughs) Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's not enough. And I actually watched the newer Muppet movie, The Muppets, that Jason Segel co-wrote, which I very much like. And I still like it. And I think the difference is that they, they have arcs in that movie. And there's a new Muppet named Walter. And I know from the very beginning, like what he wants and his motivations and his, what his arc is going to be. And then when Kermit's introduced, I mean, generally all the other Muppets are there to support Kermit. And still that movie could use a little bit more. But this 
one I felt like I don't know anything about anybody because he'll just meet Piggy and be like, you want to come? We don't get to know anything about who they are besides the stock characters that they're based off of. And because I felt like most of the jokes did not land, as amusing as I find the Muppets, I didn't find them funny. And so it was it was disappointing. I'm I'm more shocked than anyone how much I, I really didn't like watching are. this. <laughs> I really found it hard to get through. Seth, why do you think Becky is wrong? <laughs> Can I count the ways? Because I think it's all of them. It's my opinion. <laughs> Your opinion's wrong. No, I'm just kidding. I think you are demanding more of these felt creatures. I demand than characters. they are intending to deliver. I demand funny lines. There are so many funny lines. There's I was not literally, enough funny I lines. was literally laughing out loud. Not immediately in this movie when they were introducing the like private screening of the movie for the Muppets on the lot. It was fine. Did not hold up for me. It was hard to get through. I didn't, yeah. You're hard to get through. Stop commenting on me. Just (laughs) share your opinion. I now picture Becky as Selena Kyle in Batman Returns, stuffing stuffed animals down the garbage disposal. (laughs) That's what you're doing to my soul right now, is you're putting Muppets in a garbage disposal. I'm just telling you the truth. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you're doing it just to hurt me. It's getting personal on the Muppet episode. I was laughing immediately in this movie. Of course, there is a rainbow haze of nostalgia upon my eyes as I as I gaze in wonder upon this movie. And a connection between those eyes. Absolutely a connection that started in a swamp, but didn't end there. I was laughing immediately in this movie. I laughed the whole way through. I hadn't seen any of the Muppet movies in a really long time, but I knew, like, and I knew knew even watching these movies growing up not that i knew you know all the intricacies of structuring a screenplay or you know structuring movie storytelling in that way when i was younger but i knew that these movies were not about the story arc they were about putting on a scrappy show they were about friends coming together they were about the muppets are trying to entertain people and they don't know the way to do that and they don't have the help that they need to you know do that Hollywood? That's right. Did you say Hollywood? Read my lips. Hollywood. You know, Hollywood. The Dream Factory. The Magic Store. Hey, don't you ever go to the movies? Oh, sure. There's a double feature in town every Saturday. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's an ad in here that you should be very interested in. Feast your eyes on that. Uh... Worldwide Studios announces open auditions for frogs wishing to become rich and famous. Well, thanks anyway, but I'm really pretty happy where I am. Oh, oh, if I were you, I would give this audition very careful consideration. You've got talent, kid. Singing, telling jokes. I mean, if you get your tongue fixed, who knows? You can make millions of people happy. Millions of people happy. Millions! But why do they want to put on a show? Because they want to entertain people. But why? Why do you want to put on a show? <laughs> like, seriously, though. I can like... tell you the motivations of what, why that gives me happiness. I have no idea why they want to put on a show. Because they're puppets. What else are they going to do? <laughs> Be accountants? In the absence of a distinct, explicit explanation of their innermost psychological motivations, why are you not just able to enjoy it for the humor of it? Because I don't find many of the jokes work. (laughs) 
when I'm watching a sketch show, I don't care why the sketch performers want to put on a show, but this is a movie about the Muppets, how they all met. It's it's about them as real people, quote it's unquote. N- it's not. It's like a sketch movie. What I would liken it to is like one of the Saturday Night Live movies where it's like, it's very clearly not aiming to be a character study. <laughs> but you don't need it to be like the serious thing. All you have to do is like, why do all these people want to put on a show? Why do they want to be famous? Like even just putting a little bit of that so that if it doesn't happen... Like, I'll want it to happen for them because then there are stakes if it doesn't happen. But I think you go into a movie like this knowing that it's going to happen, that they're going to succeed because they're plucky and funny puppets. But but there's then there's nothing. Why am I? (laughs) Why am I watching this? You sound (laughs) to me all of all of what you said should be retold in a Werner Herzog voice. (laughs) You're like, okay. I, I do not understand. What, what is their motivation? I, mean, I do not understand. I need Chris to weigh in here motivates <laughs> before the we go further. <laughs> Where do you think I am on this argument? I think you're closer to me. <laughs> is that what you think so? I don't know. You hadn't seen The Muppet Show growing up. So it's like, I don't know how much of a connection you had to them just as, as funny entities. What did I think of The Muppet Movie now? I think Statler and Walter said it best. <laughs> Oh, no. I've seen Detergents leave a better film than this. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I actually really like this movie. <laughs> I was about to sing Don't Go Breaking My Heart as Miss Piggy. Fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, that would have been worth it. <laughs> Becky just quit. <laughs> Becky just quit the podcast. How is this our most controversial episode? <laughs> The Muppets, tearing apart relationships <laughs> since 1974. How are we going to have Thanksgiving together? <laughs> I can't break bread with you anymore. <laughs> Instead of, like, talking about Trump at the table, it's just the Muppets. <laughs> Equally orange. <laughs> no, I was pretty charmed by this movie, and I found that it had more heart. I mean, obviously it does not have super strong, like, character arcs. <laughs> But it does have a lot more heart than the show does. Like, starting just with Kermit singing a song, a very heartfelt song. Obviously, they sing a lot on the show, but it's often, for comedic effect, you know, you don't often get a sense of, like, you know, he's alone in a in a swamp, you know, and it's, it's this kind of weird, but kind of a little beautiful, like, moment of a frog just dreaming. And I honestly feel like that, that song actually does a lot of the work of, like, building a character arc for him. It's just that so he, wants, he wants connection i don't think there is that much of an arc for the rest of them but i didn't really need that much i mean i don't think everything in this movie works and like the show some of the like one li- some of them are funny and some of them are like eh, like that's that's a real dad joke but like overall i found this movie charming like it has a higher production value than the show which i think helps is just like even more so than the show like i rarely wondered like oh how did they do that i mean i Occasionally, like, when I saw, like, a Muppet driving a car, I was like, uh, <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's earlier when I said that. When, when Fozzie was driving the car, it regi- I had to register, like, three scenes later being like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hold on that's second. not really Fozzie driving that. <laughs> but yeah, I, f- I found this movie mostly immersive, even more so than the show. It starts off with its own critique as the Muppets are all sitting down to watch this movie. And, of course, Tyler and Waldorf are commenting on how bad the movie is going to be. And there's all kinds of Muppets chiming in with, like, garbage takes on on what they're going (laughs) to see. And so 
it's really setting your expectations low in a way, or at least, you know, in a kind of a pretend way. It just has such a, like, nice spirit to it. And enough of it was funny that it carried me through, even though I think some of the more plotty scenes and aspects aren't super great. I I find this filmmaking-wise to be a perfectly great movie, filmmaking-wise. Pretty much all of it is in-camera effects, right? Even that giant animal head at the end is like a real giant animal head they they built. (laughs) So, you know, filmmaking-wise, I think it's either fine or fantastic. It's just the script did not do it for me. The the characters didn't do it for me. And I didn't feel the need to go on this journey with them. I missed you. Don't I get one kissy kissy? Uh, No, I I don't think so, Miss Piggy. Just one little hug. Oh, Piggy. Come You've been listening to music to Hug Frogs by. And this is Doc Hopper saying that if Kermit the Frog don't stop right now and call me and agree to be my national spokesman, he will soon be a frog burger. Oh, honey! Uh, uh, we'll be okay. Oh, my Capitan. Ah, uh, oh boy, uh, yeah, what? Ah, uh, uh, no problem. It's okay, it's okay. No problem. Hey, all right. Uh, oh, listen. Uh, oh, we're in trouble. I wish I still had my student budget. Probably something broken about the engine up there. Yeah. Like Chris, like I was just so charmed by it. And I mean, I also just found the character moments super funny, both in the organic moment of them happening, but also in the kind of Hollywood cliches that they're playing on. Like for me, one of the funniest scenes in the whole thing is when Miss Piggy sees Kermit for the first time and instantly falls in love with him and instantly starts singing this like very weepy ballad. (laughs) Like I, died laughing at that i could not believe how funny that and there's was. a whole montage that, that i like you're not entirely sure if you're like flashing forward or if it's just like their fantasy but it, <laughs> if it's it, a dream sequence it really reminded me of um the butch cassidy and the sundance kid the raindrops keep <laughs> yes. falling um which is parodied in a lot of places and maybe even the muppets made fun of it at some point but like this is a time still when there wasn't a lot of like self-reference in movies honestly like i was thinking about it and i was like i think the closest thing is like french new wave <laughs> like that's kind yeah. of what this movie is is where it's just like playing with form a lot and very self-consciously calling itself out as a movie i mean there's a running gag where kermit keeps pulling out the script of the movie and saying like oh what happens next and it's this kind of weird chicken or the egg thing because it's like the script says you know what's going to happen next but okay so i guess we should do this now (laughs) yeah but it's like well but do you have free will like it's it's a very existential crisis and you obviously can't think about it too much but to have that level of commentary on itself right away and this framing device of they're literally sitting down to watch the movie that we're watching but then they kind of like sort of interact with the giant creature like bursting out of the screen at the end and finally like joining them 
In the movie Melting Down. Yeah. I found it such a weird choice because your instincts with a puppet movie would be like, oh, this has to be as immersive as possible. Like, we don't want to call attention to the fact that this is a puppet show and everyone's just like really just, you know, moving their hands and like hiding under under the screen. And so you would think you would need the movie to not to like be as like devoid of any like reference to the fact that this is just, you know, artifice, but they go the other way and it somehow still even works is that even though it doesn't look real, obviously they, the puppets still look very homemade. Like they look like things that you could make you oh, know, I, with stuff that's lying I around mean, the I house. I don't agree with that. I think they're really well made. They're really well made, but the, just the overall design of them still f- has that like sort of like, oh, I found this stuff in the house and I'm going to put this together, which is, you know, what the original You can tell they're was. handmade. And yeah. it's also like, I, I love that animal moment too, like the giant animal, because there's like a magic laser ray that makes things grow in size. But in that moment, you can literally see in like one corner of the frame, there's like a giant metal column holding up <laughs> the animal mechanical bionic robot or whatever it's immersive just in the experience of the joke and it also brings to mind movies like airplane and and those types of movies the point is not to tell one cohesive story everyone involved in making it knows that going in their intention is just to keep the jokes running and again kind of like keep throwing spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and so like becky i I also get it you know just in the sense that like if you don't like dad jokes as much, if you don't like life or joy, like of course you no, don't like not this even movie. not even that. Like everyone's individual comedic sensibility is different. So, like in the case of any movie that's like inherently episodic, like something like this, or like anything by Monty Python, if any of the individual jokes don't hit, it can slow the enjoyment of the whole thing to a crawl or completely kill it in its tracks. And so, I agree with you in the sense that a movie that had a more structurally grounded narrative and that went to the lengths to deeply establish like a very firm character arc and do that kind of traditional three-act storytelling structure that might have a different appeal to people and it might have a more consistent appeal to people that go to movies expecting that but that's not what i expect out of this movie and also i love corny dad jokes too i don't like like corny dad jokes i think that's a key consideration and i I do think that's a key element of why you wouldn't like get as much out of this as i would yeah i mean uh, to go back to the more recent muppets i really loved it the jason siegel one and i think it was just better written and the jokes landed and it took that kind of humor but it made it a lot more clever and look like if i didn't know anything about the muppets and i was like a kid in the what is this late 70s early 80s 79 yeah and saw this this would have blew my mind (laughs) and i think because i know who the muppets are i've seen them in a thousand things like i know their characters that this felt boring to me because I know I know Fozzie's this, Piggy's this, Piggy's the, the narcissist, Kermit's the straight man, like that it, there was nothing like exciting for me watching it in you, a rewatch. And you've also got a film degree and an education in film and and ha- the like the story structure elements of that. So I think there's a way in which that kind of education trains you to kind of expect those things from a movie. Sure. You know, I, especially like postmodern, but like 
Yeah, this is coming off of the 70s when a lot of movies were very rambling and very much about like yes. drifters wandering through and it was, it locations. It was rambling. It was yeah. meandering. Yeah. Um, and Absolutely. for me, it just, that made it more of a slog to get through because it, I wouldn't have minded less character development in motivation if the jokes all worked, but they didn't for me. So then it was just like, I just felt kind of annoyed watching this. Despite being charmed in general by these characters, I wanted more if the movie's going to be about them. Yeah, I think at the time, like, because they had only been on this, like, TV screen in one location, like, I think the wonder of just seeing them, like, wandering around the world was probably, like, added a lot to the movie. Oh, for sure. And there aren't other movies really like this, like, in a lot of ways. So I think, like, because we're so used to, like, more special effects now, like, the Muppets have done a lot more. Like, we grew up seeing them in a bunch of other locations. So I can see how, like, going back to this would feel a little bit, like, primitive in a way. But there's something that I like about the primitiveness of it that it's so simple yeah i I find it because it's so self-referential but it's very uncynical and i think i like this sense that they're so like untouched by like trying to do anything like for me like the muppets maybe with some exceptions but like i feel like the less ambitious they are the better in a lot of ways like you can do a lot with them and there has been a lot done with them like over the years you know to plug them into this kind of story or that kind of thing but their spirit like goes back to that like hippie mentality of just like eh, we're here we're gonna put on a show like it feels thrown together even if it isn't because you have to do a lot of work you know to plan this kind of show or especially this kind of movie but yeah I think I like it going back and like kind of evoking that 60s 70s spirit in this movie and to me that goes a really long way of just like like wanting to just like hang out with these characters and be on a road trip and not caring like what happens, not caring if they get to Hollywood. It's really more just about the one-off jokes. And then, but there are, you know, certain moments of them like singing by the fire, you know, when they, they have a flat tire at a certain point that, you know, feel like movie scenes. And, and even though they're very loose, you know, there's not a ton of emotional heft to any scene. Like there's little, you know, moments that, that just feel cinematic or, you know, that kind of evoke other movies um, in the same spirit of, like, you know, a road trip movie or something that I just didn't need that much from this movie. I was content to hang out with these characters. I liked the Steve Martin scene. <laughs> that I didn't... I, I mean, I already kind of explained my my thing with that, but that was the one scene where I felt like he was, like, the star of the scene and yeah. Miss Piggy and Kermit were just kind of sitting there, like, waiting for their turn. It was definitely different from the rest of the movie. Like, it... It feels out. like a sketch in the middle of the movie. I mean, yeah. I liked Steve Martin, but I don't know if it fit with the vibe of the movie because of what we said. Like, he kind of stole the show in that scene. Sparkling Muscatel, one of the finest wines of Idaho. Uh, uh, well, you may serve us now, please. Oh, may I? Look how he does that. Yeah, very swamp. Don't you want to smell the bottle cap? Oh, oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Smells good. Mm, yes. Would you like to taste it first? Well, uh, I think he's supposed to. Uh, uh, would you taste it for us, please? Mm. 
Excellent choice. Should be for 95 cents. Mm. And um, may we have straws, please? Yes. I expected that. Thank you. Uh, that'll be all for now. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Here's to you, Miss Piggy. Oh. Drink up. What I loved about it, aside from the Steve Martin of it, was just how, again, like, Kermit is just very earnest and not cynical. And he's, he has no idea how to woo Miss Piggy, but he's clearly very taken by her and knows that she's very taken by him. The earnestness of it and the total lack of cynicism, I think it's, I think this movie especially, but all of the Muppet movies are considerably less cynical even than The Muppet Show is. And I do think there's something about the quote unquote, like, humanity of the, the actual, like, emotional moments in it that makes it more resonant for me. And also, I just have to say, like, the final song in this really hit hard for me because they, they come to Hollywood and they instantly make it. <laughs> I mean... And uh. <laughs> because the secretary's allergic to them and just wants... She's like, just go in. And Kermit Kermit sings in the first verse about being a kid and performing in the mirror and being a class clown and the kinds of ways that someone's creative personality, like, first manifests itself in early childhood. And I used to do, like, all those things, basically, like, including singing in my parents' master bathroom, which had, like, three adjoined mirror walls <laughs> creating an infinite tunnel mm. of cess <laughs> that could perform for an audience of me. But, like, the lyrics are, life's like a movie, write your own ending, keep believing, keep pretending we've done just what we set out to do thanks to the lovers the dreamers and you and again like the rainbow connections song and this is kind of a reprise of that i just found it very touching and to me that kind of at least emotionally set the stage for what they're going through as characters even if we don't get a super deep character arc of each of them that neatly lays out their whole entire backstory and explains exactly where they're at now what I think this movie does well, I mean, and I said some nice things too, <laughs> but it set the tone, even, even though the tone of the show is similar, it set the tone for the movies that it's going to be very heartfelt, it's going to be very earnest, it's going to be family friendly, but still for the whole family, like, meaning adults will like this too. And I just felt like it set that tone of what you expect from the Muppets very well going forward, because now they've had like 10 movies or something, and that tone is in all of them. And I do like that Jason Siegel movie a lot. I saw it in the theaters. And I absolutely agree with what you said. Like, I do think it has a much more traditional story structure yeah. approach to the screenwriting. And I thought he did a great job. I've always really enjoyed, like, his approach to mm -hmm. to material like that. And I thought that was a really great marriage of those characters in that world and his kind of sensibility as a writer. So I totally see what you're saying. Yeah, I laughed out loud at this movie, whereas, like, I kind of smiled at the show. So that was, like, my best explanation of, for, like, my relationship to these two things, is that the show was like, I appreciate this. This, like, actually amused me in many parts. Like what? Like, lines, like, that's pretty dangerous, building a road in the middle of the street. <laughs> <laughs> things like that. The Carol Kane, uh, yes. you know, keep 
she kept popping up when people say myth. Yes. Uh, hearing, like, miss with a lisp, basically. Everything Madeline Kahn does is hilarious, because Madeline Kahn's one of the funniest human beings to ever live. Yeah, the plotty stuff with, like, the frog legs, like, some of it's funny, but it, it overtakes the movie in a way that I think is overkill. Frog legs, frog legs, frog legs are fine. Poppins is the place you should dine. There's cheese legs, bacon legs, chili legs, too. French fried frog if you want just a snack, then here is the one. A frog leg burger on a bright green bun. Oh. oh, that is terrible. That's the most appalling, disgusting, revolting thing I've ever seen. I know, I'm a great businessman and a sweet fella, but I do lack the skills of a performer. You also make a lousy frog. You, on the other hand, make a terrific frog. What? He's right, you know, you are very likable, Kermit. The bear's right. You, my little likable friend, are going to do all our television commercials. No way. Well, hold it now, just a minute. There's $500 in it for you up front. $500 is just the beginning. Mm. You could be earning this much every year. Let's go, Fozzie. $500? Would you consider a bear in a frog suit? Fozzie! I guess, sir, I just lost my head. I I don't like the Mel Brooks scene uh, where he's a mad scientist. I don't either. Yeah. I don't either. That was like a lead balloon for me. And I love Mel Brooks. Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's the wrong tone. It's like going for this really like goofy shtick that just like does not feel like the right kind of humor for this. Yeah. And also, I love the fact that we've talked so long about the Muppet movie and haven't mentioned that Orson fucking Wells is in this movie. Well, when you said, like, oh, they get in so easy because she's allergic to Muppets, I'm like, no, it's because Orson Wells says, prepare the Richard Famous contract. <laughs> That's <laughs> obviously, like, a spoof of, like, all these, like, Hollywood movies where they do, I mean, it's obviously not that easy, but it's, like, that is a cliche of, like, oh, you just wander into Hollywood and you get discovered. It's also perfect because Orson Wells had the early hit of Citizen Kane and spent the rest of his life and professional career getting fucked over by every single person he ever tried to get to fund his movies. He spent like the last 25 years of his life trying to get this one last movie made and was never able to finish it as long as he was alive. What movie is that? Uh, it's called The Other Side of the Wind. It is now available it's on Netflix. <laughs> I found a lot more meaning in that particular moment and in those jokes, just because it's like they're being delivered by a person who in some ways did get the quote-unquote rich and famous contract, and it fucked him over for the rest of his entire life. Well, where's that Muppet movie? <laughs> Citizen Kermit. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Well, we will talk more about the Muppets in our next episode, part two, in which we are going to go on to the Muppet Christmas Carol, as well as other properties like the Muppet Babies. Anything you can stick the word Muppet in front of or after basically has been done. When uh, we were Muppet. Join us then. And that's all the connections we have time for, rainbow or otherwise, on this episode of When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast product. Rate and review us five stars so that more people hear the show. Contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young so we can bring more episodes of the show to you for free. I have been Seth. I'm Becky, and I'm on Seth's shit list. <laughs> and I think this podcast gets better with age. You do? The more I lose my hearing, the better the show sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been half asleep? 
you heard voices? I've heard them calling my name. Is this the sweet sound that calls the young sailors? The voice might be one and the same. I've heard it too many times to ignore it. It's something that I'm supposed to be. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me.